Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. Wow, North Coast Church, you showed up in a big way for our Serve Your City campaign. You gave, you served, and you loved on our local communities. To be able to see a highlight reel of all that took place, we encourage you, go to our website or to our social media, North Coast Church, to be able to see a highlight reel of all of the results, and then share it with all that you know, to be able to show what it is that God is doing in and through the church. Now let's go ahead and get ready for today's service. Pastor Larry Osborne's going to be speaking on John chapter 8 once again as he continues in this story. You can get our message notes on our website, northcoastchurch.com, or by utilizing our North Coast Church app. There you can give to help support the ministries of North Coast Church or fill out your connection card as well. Without further ado, let's go to Pastor Larry. Hey, North Coast, it's good to be with you again. And this weekend, we're going to take a look back at the same passage we looked at last weekend, but we're going to look at it through a different lens. Uh, If you were with us last weekend, you will remember that we asked the question, why does John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the passage we're looking at today, why does it have a little footnote or is it italicized, whether we've got a digital Bible or a paper Bible in front of us? And why does it have a note that says, this is not found in most of the ancient manuscripts. I call that the elephant in the passage because it arises a very important question, which is how reliable is the Bible? Has it changed significantly over time? Do we really have the same Bible that was written by the original uh, authors? And we saw that if we rightly understand this thing called textual criticism, uh, the science of uh, looking at ancient manuscripts, not just the Bible, but any ancient manuscript, and and trying to figure out what the original said is really a a rather clear-cut science, and and, uh, uh, it's gives us exactly what we need to know. And we discovered when we come to the Bible uh, that no one is hiding anything. That's why there are footnotes everywhere that you find a passage that might not belong. And by the way, there's only two significant ones. There's this and the very end of the Gospel of Mark. Everything else is sentence structure, uh, a one-word change, uh, an alteration in spelling or whatever it would be. And all of them are footnoted for us. So again, nobody's hiding anything. It's rather clear which few parts maybe don't belong. And part of it is because we have such a massive collection of ancient manuscripts to compare one slight change with another slight change and figure out, well, hey, what is the most common one and what is the one that can be traced uh, all the way back? Now, we come today to this passage and you might be wondering, well, then if we're not sure it was originally penned by John, why is it in there? Well, because it was considered an authentic story from the very beginning by the early church. So we've got this Jesus story that is true. No, John did not pen it, and we want you to know that. That's why nothing is being hidden. But it's a real story of something that actually happened. And that's why scribes later on uh, put it into this section, another section of John, and a part of Luke. They were looking like, well, it's a true story. Where can we put it in? They didn't want to have a book of the Bible that was like eight, you know, 11 verses long. You know, that doesn't really work out real well. And, and when we also take a look at it, uh, it's easy to see that it wasn't a fabricated story uh, that somehow was written later on and then put in the Bible, because the truth of the matter is the story that we're going to look at has almost the exact opposite message that was emphasized in the early church. 
where there was such a huge emphasis on moral purity in light of the decadence of the Roman culture. So there's no way that somebody's going to put 100 years later or 200 years later some story that goes totally against the grain of the thing that they are emphasizing. Because as we will see, Jesus takes a woman caught in adultery and actually lets her go when everybody else wanted to stone her. So with that said, that little bit of a reminder, let's dig into this passage today and see what it tells us about God's grace. And as you can see from the title of this message, it is literally amazing. And we're going to see how God's amazing grace applied to this woman, how it applies to us, and perhaps more importantly, how we're to take the grace that we've received and turn that and apply it to others. So let's start out with another look at at the passage. If you're not already there, find John chapter 8, and we're going to look together at these first 11 verses. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach him. And while he was teaching, verse 3 tells us that the teachers of the law, the scholars, uh, uh, religious teachers of that day, and the Pharisees, the most rigid, committed group of people that in the eyes of everybody else was on fire for God, no compromise in their life. Well, they brought a woman who was caught in adultery, caught in the act, literally, and they made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, in the law, the Old Testament law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And then we're told they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, I pointed out last week in a couple of things I want us to see again. She was caught in the act. There is no question. But it raises another question. Well, where's the guy? This was a setup. This was a trap, not only for, for Jesus, but sadly for the woman as well. And uh, their, their question had no right answer. As I said last weekend, it's like, does your mother know you're stupid? Have you stopped beating your wife? And those kind of questions, like, what do I do with that? Because if Jesus said, let her go, then he would be, have been violating the law of Moses. Ah, it's no big deal. And they've got him. He's no real rabbi. He's no real teacher. He's no real man of God. But if he said, you know, the law says, those 613 laws in the Old Testament, says that one caught in the act of adultery, by the way, not accused, but caught in the act of adultery, is to be stoned to death. Well, the Romans didn't allow the Jews to carry out any form of capital punishment. So he's kind of between literally a rock and a hard place. And so what Jesus does is he bends down and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. And verse 7 says, they kept on questioning him as he's down on his knee writing something down. And so he straightens up and he says to them, a very simple solution. Here's what you need to do. And he turns the trap, jiu-jitsu. He turns it on to them. Let any one of you who is without sin, you be the first to throw a stone at her. No problem. Yep, the law says that. So whichever one of you is without sin, you pick up that stone and you throw it. And then he bent down again and started right on the ground. Verse 9 says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with a woman still standing there. So Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? What happened here? Has no one condemned you? 
I.E., I want you to notice this. This is so important. You might circle it in your Bible and put a little note next to it. When he says, as no one condemned you, they obviously had criticized her. They obviously had called her a sinner. They had done lots of things. But what they had not done is pick up stones to kill her. And that's synonymous with the word condemn, as we're going to see. And it's a very important point as we go forward. Has no one condemned you? Has no one picked up that stone to be the first to throw it? And she says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. I'm not going to pick up a stone, and I'm not going to stone you for this. And then he says, the final words of this passage, go now and circle, highlight, underline this, and leave your life of sin. Now, here's what I want you to know before we step back and say, how does this apply to us in, in our lives today? I want you to notice that Jesus didn't say, ah, don't worry about it. It's all good. He did not say that. Jesus called her sin, sin. Go and sin no more. Leave your life of sin behind. God's forgiveness is not a get out of jail free card. God's forgiveness is not, ah, it's all just wiped away, it's okay. God's forgiveness is a call to a thing the Bible calls repentance. Now that's a fancy stained glass word, but all repentance means is I'm heading in one direction and I turn around. And God forgives us not when we repent, but to repent. Because it's not, this lady hadn't turned around and said, oh, I'm going to change. And, and many of us, when we came to Jesus, that wasn't our thing. He forgives us, not, ah, eh, go out and have a good time again. No, he forgives us to free us up from our sin that we would go and sin no more. That's what the word repentance means, that we would turn around and instead of heading this way, we would head in the direction of following him. Now, there are a couple words in our culture that have lost their meaning completely. And I want to talk about them for just a moment. One of them found in this passage, and another is a concept found in this passage and throughout Scripture. And the word found in this passage is the word condemn. I have pointed out to you that properly translated, the word condemn in the, the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, uh, doesn't mean what condemn means to us in our more modern day kind of colloquial uh, urban use of, of that word. The biblical word condemn means to carry out judgment. That's, I mean, they'd all obviously judged her, but that's why Jesus says, has no one condemned you? Has no one carried out the judgment? And that's why he says, neither do I carry out the judgment, but go and leave your life of sin behind. Now, what's the word condemn? What's it come to mean today? <laughs> a rather different thing. Would you agree? Uh, well, hey, man, you shouldn't be condemning people pretty much means you shouldn't criticize anybody. Would you agree with me on that? Or it means like, uh, well, what right do you have to condemn to call something wrong? By the way, even if it's wrong, uh, we, are, we are living in this uh, day and age where uh, we're kind of told, well, you don't have any right to decide what's right and wrong for someone else. And of course, that's crazy because there are things that are right and wrong, and we all know them when they happen to us. 
uh, you know, I, I might be saying, man, you can't condemn somebody for stealing you because you don't know their whole story and their whole background. But it's kind of interesting to me how quickly I condemn you when you steal from me. Uh, and, you know, we always are quick to say, oh, oh, be slow to judge. But when you turn around and do it to me, I am uh, rather quick to judge. And don't look at me that way. So are you. That's what we do in this day and age. And by the way, I, I, I jotted down on, on my notes here a couple of modern day examples of condemning like the religious leaders and those, those Pharisees did. Uh, one of them is a big thing we see all around us. We call it cancel culture. And, and what is cancel culture? I look at something you did in the past and I carry out a judgment on you. No matter whether you say you were sorry, no matter whether cultural rules have changed and, and, and what you did then is not what you would do now, what cancel culture does is exactly what those people were doing. And Jesus' answer to cancel culture would be exactly his answer to who, what they were doing, which is great. If you've got nothing in your background, you pick up the first stone and you throw it. If you've got nothing in your background to forever cancel you that you can't change from, uh, you haven't, uh, haven't become a different person, you, uh, there's no apology for, great. If you have nothing like that, pick up the first stone and you do the cancel thing. Cancel culture, completely, completely against the heart of Jesus and what we see here. But that's easy for me to do and kind of look around at cancel culture and ah, you know, that's kind of a favorite whipping boy of some people today, even though a ton of people are still doing it. But then there's personal cancel culture. And if I'm honest and I look in the mirror, I know that I have a tendency to look at certain things people do or have done and treating that as if that's some unforgivable thing. The moment you do that, I write you off, I put you in a box and I seal that box. You know what? That's the same thing. That's condemning. I can look at you and say, hey, that's wrong. I can look at you and call sin, sin, as we're going to say. But what I'm not allowed to do, if I'm going to have the spirit of Jesus and be a Jesus follower, is I can't write people off. And especially with this idea where I'm deciding whether or not you've repented enough. I'm deciding whether or not you're sorrowful enough. And many of the things that if we're honest, we actually do ourselves as we look around culture, as we look around people in our peripheral relationships, and sometimes as we look at those that are, are closest to us. It's not condemning to call sin, sin. It's simply telling the truth. That's what Jesus did. But to write people off, to seal the box and say, no, this one has no way out, that's to do what the religious leaders and the Pharisees were doing. Now, there's this second word. It's the word tolerance. Did you know that if we're Jesus followers, we should be the most tolerant people in the world in the sense of what tolerance is supposed to actually mean? It means you have the right to be wrong. And as a Jesus follower, I need to always look in the rearview mirror and remember those times I was wrong and God's grace and mercy towards me. I, I, I need to remember the things I have changed, the things I uh, no longer do. I, I have to look back at a bunch of things, and I'm so glad I wasn't destroyed in that moment that I was given grace and time and opportunity for change. And that's the tolerance you and I should have as Jesus followers, if that's what we claim to be. The sad thing, though, is tolerance, like the word condemn, has, has got a whole new dictionary meaning today. It seems to me as if the new dictionary meaning is no longer you have the right to be wrong, 
but it's that nobody's wrong. <laughs> Everybody's right. And, and whatever choice or decision you make, hey, if I'm going to be a tolerant person, I don't allow you to make it. I actually affirm you as you make it. And once again, that's going to take us in a totally different direction than Jesus did. He, he, he called sin, sin. But he didn't carry out the harsh judgment at the moment. He offered the olive branch of forgiveness, repentance, and change. And as he has done that to us, he's calling us to do that to others. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. Uh, I, I want to step back and, and just kind of reflect about how amazing God's grace is that he's offered us, like he offered that woman. Go and sin no more. On the cross, he bore our penalty for our sins and our choices. But I also want us to look at it through the lens of, okay, when there's sin there in my life, sin uh, out in the world, uh, how in the world am I supposed to respond to these in the way that Jesus would have me respond? So if you have a note sheet with you, you're going to see that it says, how are we supposed to respond to and there's three areas. Number one, how are we supposed to respond to our sin? <laughs> that's the starting point. That's where Jesus took the religious leaders. That's where Jesus took the Pharisees. And that's where Jesus and Scripture wants to take us. Always start with a look at our own sin. But then there's a second group. How are we to respond to the sins of a fellow Jesus follower when, when, when they sin? What are we supposed to do? And the third one is what about the sin of a non-Christian. So let's start it with our own sin now. What are we supposed to do? There's a lot of things, but I'm going to sum it up in just a few today. And the first one is this. I need to call my sin, sin. <laughs> You've got to call your sin, sin. That's the first thing Jesus wants us to do with our sin. That means no excuses. That means I can't say, well, you know, it's a weakness. I don't have weaknesses. I have sins. But it's so much easier to say, well, you know, I, I'm just a little weak in this area. I'll never get the, the, the help I need. I'll never see the power of God at work in my life when I make excuses and I call sin a weakness. It's not a mistake. It was a choice. I, my eyes were wide open and so were yours when we do things. It's, well, that was a mistake. No, no, no. Uh, a mistake is, is, is when I pick up something mislabeled and, and, and take it. A mistake is when I don't know what's going on. It's a choice. It's a sin. And definitely, if I'm going to deal with my sin and see God's work in my life to redeem it, then what I'm going to also realize is it's, it's not someone else's fault. It's not the dysfunctional upbringing I had. It's, it's not my spouse. It's, it's not my kids. It's, it's not that crazy person who cut me off on the road that caused me to do what I did. In fact, I can pretty much, for everything that I feel like, well, you pushed my button, you caused it in my life, I can pretty much show you someone else who has the same thing happen to them, and they don't respond like I do. The starting point is of dealing with our own sin is we got to call it sin. We got to call sin sin. Notice, let's see what how the uh, brother of Jesus, James, in the book of James, writes it. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away. Catch this, by their own evil desires. That's the starting point. It was something in my appetite. I've shared with, uh, this with you before that, you know, when you go fishing, it's not the lure that catches the fish. 
okay? Uh, it's the appetite in the fish. That's why some can swim right by it and have a totally different response. That's what brings us to sin. And here's the problem with excuses, why it's so important. Because as long as I make excuses and don't take responsibility, I will not feel the deep need for change because after all, it's not really my fault. And it's not long. Here's the problem with excuses. It's not long until excuses start to callous and to sear our conscience. Come on, let's be real. We've all been there. There was something at first we felt kind of guilty about, and then we felt a little bad about, and the next thing you know, we were just excusing it. And the, it's like the conscience had been calloused in this particular area or seared. It's just no longer there. And yet Scripture speaks powerfully to those of us who change the definition of what's right or wrong over time to adjust our values to our behavior rather than our behavior to our values. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now here's the thing I notice in my life. I wonder if you notice in yours. I can get really upset at a culture or at people who call evil good when I agree that that's evil. And yet, my starting place before the Lord, by the way, that's not excusing it. It is wrong to do. And woe to those who call evil good. But the starting point as a Jesus follower is always to grab a mirror, not binoculars, and ask this question. Are some things that are evil being called good in my life are there some things that are darkness that I'm calling light? Are there some things that are bitter that I'm calling sweet? That's always, always the starting point. We've got to call sin, sin. The second thing we need to do in our lives is this. If the struggle continues, we need to get help. As we look in, at our own lives, okay, uh, you without sin be the first one to pick up the stone. Uh, uh, by the way, before you go after others, take a look in the mirror at yourself. Uh, well, what happens if, if we keep finding ourselves with the same struggle over and over? One of the problems in our culture is simply this. We are so individualistic. We think, well, just me, prayer, and Jesus, we can fix it. But I want to tell you the truth is there are some sins and some struggles that are too strong to be beaten alone. I've shared with you before the fact that Jesus, when it came time for him to go to the cross, felt that the agony and, and, and all that was in front of him was so great. He brought a group of guys uh, with him and he said, hey, will you come with me and pray for me? So if Jesus looked at some temptations and trials as too great to bear alone, I have no idea why I think just me and Jesus can handle everything that I face. We're actually called in the Bible to confess our sins one to another. And a lot of people misunderstand what it actually means. The real reason is we confess so we get prayer and we get help. I want to show you the verse that's so often misunderstood. Again, it's from the book of James, written by the brother of Jesus. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't say confess your sins to a pastor. 
It doesn't say I'm to confess my sins to a priest. And by the way, it doesn't say confess my sins to everybody as if I'm some sort of a emotional exhibitionist. Actually, this was written in an era there were no automobiles, there were no cars, there was no mobility, uh, communities were quite small, the churches were house churches, and when they were confessing their sins to each other, that, that doesn't mean every Christian you run across. It wouldn't mean in a large church like North Coast or any of our campuses or venues or, or those of you that are meeting in some homes and uh, uh, you know uh, the, the, the club at your homeowner's place or whatever and watching this today, uh, it's... You don't do this to people who are not safe, to people who are not going to pray for you. But the concept here has been turned into either everybody share everything or share it with a professional. And in the real context that was written of a house church, here's what it means. Most of us need some people we can be real with. And we can say, hey, I want to confess. I want to let you know I'm doing this. And it's not so I'm, you can give me forgiveness. It's so you can give me prayer and you can give me help. If you're struggling with it, and it's not going away easy, get help. And it starts with becoming real and getting prayer and whatever support will make a difference. Now here's the third thing about our own sins. We clearly see it in this passage. We want to make sure we never harshly condemn those who struggle with our struggle. Never harshly condemn those who struggle with your own struggle. Uh, now, listen carefully. It's not just the wrong thing to do. It's the stupid thing to do. Now, why do I say that? Because when I am harsh on you for the things I actually struggle with, I'm begging God to be harsher with me. And the scriptures tell me, he goes, okay, I had planned to treat you with this for that sin, but if that's how you want to treat others for that sin, I guess that's the kind of treatment that you want for yourself. Again, we're majoring in, in the letter of James today as our, our uh, helpful uh, passage. Here's what he says. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But here's the beauty. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You got somewhere in your life you've struggled with a long time, something you're really ashamed of in the past. There's a human tendency sometimes to be harsher on those things, almost as if I'm saying to God, hey, I really hate it, and I'm showing it by my response here. Uh, we sometimes do that with our children. We'll be incredibly harsh on the things that we struggled with. Well, Scripture is quite clear. If you want mercy to triumph over God's judgment, well, then be merciful. And if you don't want mercy, well, then great. Don't give mercy. There's another passage. It's on your note sheet. We can look, you can look at it later this weekend. It's a famous one that says, judge not lest you be judged. And once again, it's don't carry out judgment. It, it's not saying you can't call something wrong. But here's what it says. Uh, Do not judge or you too will be judged. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. For in the same way, the same manner that you judge others, you will be judged. And with whatever measure you use to judge others, that same measure is going to be used on you. And then he talks about what I like to call log-eye disease. He says, why in the world do you worry about the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a big old honking log in your own eye? 
The principle of what we see Jesus doing in this story with this woman and, and, and the principle of how he responds to the religious leaders and Pharisees is carried out through all of Scripture and is the idea that if we want mercy or we have been given mercy, it's our responsibility to give mercy back. You know, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of like you're in a situation where, man, this is really a bad thing. It deserves a punishment. It deserves in Old Testament days a stoning. And it's, it's kind of like we all got a rock with uh, somebody's name on it, okay? Shame on you. And here's what we need to make sure. That when we've got a rock and it's got someone else's name on it and we're ready to throw it, we got to make sure that on the side facing us, there's another name. And it's our name. And uh, that's kind of what must have happened to those uh, guys as Jesus wrote in the ground. And it was uh, the older and the wiser ones who, who were the first to leave, like gulp. And, and I can picture it. It's almost as if they had this rock. And on it, it said adulterous woman. And they're ready to go like that. And before they release it, it's like, uh-oh, their name is on it. And I think this is a great picture of what God is calling us to do. Oh, there are sins that deserve judgment. But before we pick up that rock and throw it, we need to make sure what's going on in our life. Uh, we were talking at sermon uh, prep, a thing we do every Tuesday where whoever is teaching kind of goes over what we're, we're thinking in the passage and getting some feedback. And uh, a couple of things were really helpful. One, this rock illustration was uh, uh, mentioned uh, by, by Trent, uh, our online pastor. And uh, that was uh, very, very helpful. But I, I told a story and everybody said, ah, you need to tell it. So here we go. When I have found myself over the years struggling with somebody, and I'm just really angry at them, and by the way, most often it's going to be because of some way they hurt me, but sometimes it's the way they've hurt someone I care for and, and someone I love. I, I, I've gone on what I call a sin walk. Now, that doesn't mean some crazy walk where what's done on a sin walk stays on a sin walk. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is I go on a walk. I, I, I like to do it at the beach. And I, I just kind of try to start thinking back as far back as I can to the things I've done wrong. That first cookie I pilfered and said, Mom, no, no, I didn't have one. All the way to anybody I heard along the way, relationships, uh, you know, something dishonest that I did or I took at different stages of my life, going back as far as I can and just trying to remember all those things. Now, normally that's a terrible thing to do because Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who accuses us and God's our defense attorney and he's the one who's paid off our penalty. But there are times where it's good to look back. And for me, as I go and look back on what I call a sin walk, it just helps me to understand, you know, there's a stone with my name on it too. And it is so easily to, easy to forget because I'm seeing life through the front windshield. And all of the things I've done are in the rearview mirror. And if I don't find a way to pause and go back to those, somehow what you were doing now seems so much more evil than what I've forgotten that I did yesterday. My bet is for some of you right now, this week, a good sin walk would be a great thing to do because you're struggling with somebody or you're struggling with something even out in our culture, a person or thing you don't even know personally. You're trying to figure out, what do I do with it? And it's got a grip on you. 
And, and you realize, no, sin is sin, and we can call it sin, but you realize what it's causing you to do is to want to be harsh. It's causing you to be angry. It's causing you to be fearful. It's, it's turning you into something you don't want to be and Jesus doesn't want you to be. Try a sin walk. It's a powerful thing to keep us from being harsher with others than we want God to be with us. Well, I spend most of the time on our own sins because that's the most important thing. But this passage does reflect upon and we need to think about, well, how do we respond to others though when they sin? Uh, let's say I, I've dealt with this or, or I'm very aware I'm not going to throw that first stone, but wait a minute, this is a wrong thing. What am I supposed to do? So let's talk briefly about the sin of a fellow Jesus follower. After I've dealt with a, a log in my own eye, there's still a speck in someone else's eye who is a fellow believer. How am I to respond? And the Bible's quite clear on how I'm to respond. Number one, I am to avoid gossip and slander like the plague. And the reason I want, want to hit that is in our culture today, that's kind of our first response when we see sin somewhere else. I'm not sure that's always been the way it is for Jesus followers and in all of culture, but today that seems to be our first response. And here's what we need to understand and why I say avoid it like, like the plague. We tend to think of gossip and slander a little bit like, oh, I drive too fast on the freeway sometimes. Uh, no, gossip and slander are a big deal spiritually. They're not just, well, I drive a little too fast. No, you know, oh, I eat too much. I don't exercise like I should or God knows what. Gossip and slander are at rock bottom when we turn away from God. You start a downward cycle that takes you further and further away from knowing God. When you hit rock bottom, guess where you will be? The relational destruction of gossip and slander. How do I know that? Well, there's a passage. It's found in Romans chapter 12, and it begins at verse 18, and it goes all the way through to verse 32. And it describes the downward cycle of a culture as it turns its back on God. <laughs> you read that, you feel like, wow, that's a lot of the culture we're living in today. But here's what I want you to get. When it gets to the very end, over and over, it says, therefore God gave him over to this. Okay, if that's what you want, God gave him over to that. Now we get to the bottom. Let me read to you Romans 1, starting verse 28. Furthermore, God, it's like near rock bottom now. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. God said, you don't want me? Boom, you can have a depraved mind. So that they do what ought not be done. Here's what happens. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Okay, this is every kind of evil, wickedness, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And then what's it say they are? They are gossips and slanders. Oh, it goes on with other things. But what I want you to catch is gossip and slander. Is it like, like the little light sin up here? It's the rock bottom sin. And it's why I want to avoid it like the plague. And that can be really hard to do when I'm living in a culture where that is a normative response to things we see and people we don't like. See, the biblical rule is always confront somebody personally, if at all possible before you say a word to anybody else about the situation. So 
Let me define gossip and slander because I can talk about it up here and, and we could all walk away and go, well, yeah, but what is it? Or I don't do that. She does it. He does it. Let me give you a working definition from my viewpoint. It's gossip when the words are true, but you don't need to know. That's gossip. Hey, this actually happened. Did you know? You're not a part of the problem. You're not a part of the situation. But I share it anyway. Well, it's true. Yeah, but why did they need to know? That's what gossip is. What is slander? Slander is when the information I'm sharing is unconfirmed and not known by me personally. I've heard about it, read about it, been told about it. And slander is designed so you have a worse opinion of the person I'm talking about. That's what gossip slander is. When I've got some juicy tidbit about somebody that's absolutely true, I know it to be true, if you're not a part of it, then I have no right to tell you, no matter how true it is. And slander is any time I've got one more story to make you think a little worse of that person. And it's not just words and personal conversation where our gossip and slander comes. Man, I'm moving from preaching to meddling right now. I realize it, but we need to hear this. Social media, retweeting something, posting something, a link to an article or a blog under the guise of informing people of things they're not involved with and they do not need to know. Or someone we all don't like. By we all, I mean people in your friendship circle. Hey, did you hear? Here's one more example of that. Because once we start to poison our soul with gossip and slander, God's up there going, wow, that's a measure you think should be measured out to you when you do wrong, when you make mistakes, and when you sin. Now, the next thing we're supposed to do, besides, first of all, don't do that natural response of letting the whole world know, but practically, here's what we're to do. We're to help those who struggle. We're to help those who struggle. We're to confront those who make excuses, and we are to avoid those who set up camp in the sin. So just real briefly, let me walk you through this. Because there are people who do things and it's, it's out of their weakness. Oh, it's sin and they can't make excuses. But as we look, we understand a little of the background, the situation, whatever it would be. They're struggling with it and they're weak. And there are those who continue to struggle over a period of time. And what we need to do is we need to come alongside and help them, not cancel them out, not gossip about them, not slander them, not get down on them. Come alongside and say, hey, man, let me help you with this. And if, if they go, oh, no, or make their excuses or continue with it, we need to step forward and not just, you know, gently, hey, can I help you? We need to give a real warning that's understand. Hey, you need to stop that. Not an angry, unkind confrontation, but a clear confrontation. Listen to what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says about this. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idols and disruptive. Okay? If, if they're going down that path, you need to warn them of, hey, this is not a good thing. And encourage the disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. And it's your job to make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. You're watching somebody in your life group who's just getting more and more bitter. You, 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 you warn them. You come alongside to help them. That's what we're called to do. But what about those who set up camp? Their excuses 
are just so strong that it's like, and th th their consciousness is so calloused and seared that this is their new reality. Well, we're not supposed to just keep like, well, at least you're at Life Group. Well, at least you're coming to church. Well, they need some friends, so I'm going to be along alongside them. Not with harshness, but with simple clarity, we're called to avoid them. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexual, immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not who struggles with these things, not who was one of these things, but who is. That's where they set up camp. He says, do not even eat with such a person. You see, the purpose is here not to punish you with pain uh, so that you are destroyed, but to punish you with the pain of separation so that you come to the point of repentance. This whole idea of avoiding is not because, oh, I want to hurt you. This idea of avoiding is because I want to bring you back. The purpose is always to bring people back. And that's why there's no cancel culture in it. You're not writing people off. You're stepping away from them while that sin continues. And when they come to their senses, then the arms are wide open. Just like there's a story in the Bible of a father and a prodigal son who just did horrific things. And when the son comes back, the father welcomes him. In fact, he actually sees him coming back, recognizes his gate. He goes running to give him a hug. Now, that didn't remove all the consequences. You know, he didn't suddenly re-split his inheritance in half and the, the good brother lost half of what was his, but he was brought back in the family and that's always our purpose. And that leaves us with one more in our final few minutes. We've seen what to do with our sin, the most important thing. We've seen how to respond to those that are in our circles, fellow believers, when they fall into sin. But what about the non-Christians in the marketplace, in the neighborhood, in the community at large? How do we respond to the sin of a non-Christian? And real quickly, I want to leave you with a couple of things. Number one, don't try to make non-Christians live like Christians. It's one of the most common mistakes we make. Don't try to make non-Christians live like Christians. That passage I read from 1 Corinthians 5 about don't even eat uh, lunch with them goes on and says this in the next verse, 1 Corinthians 5.12. Paul says, Hey, you deal with a believer, but what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge? Remember, judge means deal with those inside the church. It doesn't do any good to carry out a judgment on people who don't have the same standards, who don't have the same Lord, and don't have the same spirit. It's not our job. Now, if you're a peace officer, if you're a judge, if you're a prosecutor, you know, you're part of a government system. They are given, the government is given authority to do these things. But as an individual, I'm not to expect non-Christians to live like Christians. By the way, that doesn't mean I have to hang around when they're doing whatever it is they're doing. But that means my job is not to try to make them live like Christians. And that leads to number two, which is my job. My job is to point them to Jesus, not a moral code. It's so easy in this day and age to argue about the moral code instead of point to Jesus. And it doesn't do us any good. 
I think I've told the story before of a, of a well-known national pastor back during an era, era of extreme Christian political involvement, which should, we should always be involved in the political process when we have the opportunity to. But it was during this era of what was known as a religious right having a, a lot of influence. And so there was a, a writer from a national magazine that had interviewed, I think it was 40 of the best known and most influential Christian political power brokers. And the last one to be interviewed asked this question. He said, has anyone explained to you the gospel? And the reporter said, no, what is that? Now think about that. A non-Christian reporter met with uh, 40 prominent Christian leaders who were involved, as we have a right to be, in the political process. The problem wasn't their involvement in the political process. The problem was they were so trying to get Christians to live like non-Christians that along the way, nobody was pointing anybody to Jesus. This reporter has all of these interviews and walks away with no idea of what the most important thing is and the only thing that changes us from the inside out, which is our Lord Jesus. When Jesus shows up in our lives, then change shows up. We get a new, con, uh, a, a new compass. We head in a new direction. But I don't head in a new direction or have a new compass without Jesus. Philippians 2.13 describes how life works this way. For it is God who works in you to will, give you the desire, and to act, give you the power for his good will. We can never do these things in the flesh ourselves, nor can anybody we know or anybody who's not a Jesus follower. Our job is to point people to Jesus. Now, I close with this. What about the sin and the evil we see in the marketplace and the political spectrum today? I mean, it's an obvious, another elephant in the situation. Like, are you saying you do nothing? No, I'm not saying we do nothing. We are so blessed because we have a voice and a vote in this culture. You know, in the early church, they did not have a voice and there was no vote. We have both those. And we should use our voice and we should use our vote, but we need to use it in a way to win people over, not wipe them out. And we should always use it as the Lord tells us how to use it. And I'm going to close with a verse that so clearly tells us how to use our voice and how to use our vote in a culture and a political arena that at times feels like, what in the world is going on? Here's what it says. Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he's telling him what to do. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. Kind to everyone. Able to teach and explain, but catch this. Not any resentment. And what do we do with opponents? Opponents, by the way, who are doing the will of Satan, as we're going to see. They've been taken captive by the enemy to do this. Well, opponents must be gently instructed. Why? Because our hope is to win them over, not wipe them out. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, a change, a turnaround, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. They will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do God's will. 
Oh, North Coaster, you've got, you've got a, a, a person at work, you've got a boss at work, you, you've got somebody in the neighborhood, you've got somebody on that soccer team, that baseball team, whatever it would be. We've got a whole culture we're dealing with, the political spectrum we're dealing with. Let's use our voice. Let's use our vote. But at the end of the day, let's make sure we can look in the mirror and say, you know what? We were kind. We were not resentful. We didn't play by the world's rules. We played by God's rules. And at the end of the day, we were not filled with hatred and disdain. We were filled with hope. Because spiritual warfare is the wrong word to use about dealing with others. The Bible uses about dealing with our own sin. It calls it spiritual warfare. When it comes to others, our goal is persuasion. And may that always be and may we always, always start our persuasion with a look in the mirror. And even when it's time for a rock, with one that's got our name on the side facing us. And then when we're ready, it's time to pick up the stone. Father, would you take the things that we have seen and would you help us to understand how amazing your grace is in our life but to also give that same amazing grace to others. To your glory and fame, we ask it. Amen. Three important areas for us to be able to decide how we're going to respond to sin in our own lives, for others in the church, and of course, others in the world. I pray that this was a challenging and encouraging message for you. We look forward to having you back next week.